Well, I don't know about you, but I'm a person who loves beverages that are brewed. And uh, they come in a lot of different formats, and I like all of them. Um, and one of those particularly is uh, tea. And when I was in Africa this last time, or this time uh, with uh, Todd and with Brian as well, um, one of the things that's very important in the, the culture of the Songhai believers there in Niger um, is this, it was actually brought over from the Middle East to Niger, is the concept of sitting around, especially the men, and drinking tea together. And so um, I love to surround myself in my house with stories, not with stuff. And so for me, um, the thing that I wanted the most uh, while I was there was on the, the last day, uh, my buddy Mark, who will be preaching here in just a few weeks, um, who's a missionary there, um, snagged me a coffee set, or excuse me, a tea set. And what's interesting about this is that for any of us that have been there, um, this process takes hours to do. And the thing is, is, is within me, I like to fix stuff. I'm a fixer by nature, and, and there is a much shorter process to making this tea that takes them hours to do. This is not a Keurig that you can go to in a matter of a few moments, you know, pop in this device and, and pump out tea. No, this takes hours as they gather these coals and, and they have this little wire basket here, if you can't see it, and they fill it full of coals. And then they have a teapot this big that they fill with, with, with these little tea things and all these leaves and and, and stuff that's not cigarettes, I promise. Um, and, and they fill this, and they put a little bit of water in there. And then what they do is, is after it's been steeping and steeping and steeping, they have two cups like this. And our friend Ibrahim, who's a church planter there who cannot read, which is a phenomenal thing to say. He's planted more churches than any of us in this room. Um, takes it, and, and he's, he does this number with the, the liquid inside of it until it gets this huge head on it. And one of the things that we've learned from Mr. Brian in our church is never wipe off the foam. That's, they hate it when you do that, all right, there in this culture. Um, and, and so they're pouring this and pouring this to where when it's all said and done, there is probably a half a cup of actual liquid in this. And then probably about a half a cup of foam, all right? So imagine the men, we're all sitting around, and they're brewing this tea, and they're talking, and we're talking. And I'm talking about we drank this stuff every place that we went. But the thing is, is there was only one cup, all right? So, hey, you're a stranger, you're a neighbor. There you go, brother. Would you like some tea? Guess what you're going to do? You're going to drink. All right? And then we, sorry, ladies. Sorry. Sorry. Young, young men, sorry. <laughs> if there's any spit in the bottom, the young guys got it. But, but pretty much, it was a manly thing to do. You were invited in, and we were constantly, good, good Lord, thank you, Jesus. It was not alcoholic, because we would have been wasted most of this trip for how much tea we syrupy drink that we shared with complete strangers. It was, it was 
in their culture, it was embedded into this life that, man, we shared, we're, we're together. This broke down walls. It, it, it allowed us to be united together in one purpose. Because you always had one guy who would drink it all. And again, they would have to start the process all over again. Okay? There is something about sharing a cup that is extremely important to Jesus. The Jews have been doing it for thousands of years as they celebrated the Passover. There was this opportunity, and again, in this culture, we're not talking about everybody has, I mean, good, my goodness, it went from everybody needing a turvis to everybody needing a Yeti now for us. All right? I'm glad you got that, Adam. And so, has he got a lid? Uh. All right? <laughs> And so, sorry, that's an inside church joke. Brother Adam loves to spill the, the, the beverage, all right? <laughs> and so, in that, we see, see, it's communal. We're still talking about a cup. It's just this time it's spilled. Um, to Jesus, inside of the Passover, again, drinking from the, the common cup, drinking or eating from the common bowl, this is what you did. They, they did not perceive this as being gross, they perceived this as, as being the body, as being united. This was important in their culture. And for thousands of years since the Passover and Exodus, the Jews have been celebrating by drinking this cup, by eating this meal in a specific way to be reminded that God had brought them out of slavery and bondage. It's believed by some Jewish scholars that even by the time that maybe even Jesus um, was partaking in this meal, that they symbolically had four drinks. Maybe one cup, but you took it four times as they remembered four promises as seen in Exodus chapter 6. That each time they would quote one of the promises, i.e., for example, um, that I'm going to bring you out, and then everybody would drink. I'm going to, to free you, and then everybody would drink. I'm going to redeem you, and everybody would drink. And then the fourth cup would be that, a cup of protection, that, that you are my people, says the Lord. You will be my people, and I will be your God. We see, I believe, in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus, even while he's passing these cups, remember, as we studied last week, he, he says that I will not drink until I see you again of these cups. Taking this and doing this in remembrance is really important to us as people. It's important in some other cultures. Maybe we can talk about this as I've had uh, the opportunity with many of you guys to have coffee with you, that we're doing similarly the same thing. We're, we're connecting, we're uniting, we're telling a story when we get together. It's some of the most precious moments for me as a person. I, I love to do that. Um, as we learned last week in the study of the Passover meal, we see that Jesus is in his, what we call the Last Supper. In just a, a few hours, Jesus is going to be, you know, paraded through town carrying a cross beam, probably naked as he's yelled upon, spit upon, as a crown of thorn is placed upon his head and he is placed for all to see as he is mocked on Calvary. And yet we see in this Passover meal that Jesus redeems it, that he is sharing again of the cups and, and he calls it now the Lord's Supper or communion. And he tells them that whenever they eat of this meal from now on, that they are 
to remember some things. That they are to be reminded of what Jesus accomplished through the death, burial, and resurrection. That they are to be reminded that he is present. Meaning that he is in relationship with us. That he is to remind us that he did this for the unity and the nourishment and the proclamation of the church to the nations. And then lastly, as we saw, he reminds us that he is coming again. That yes, maybe the first sip in communion is a a little bit somber, but by the time we finish the meal each Sunday for us, that we are to be rejoicing at the return of Jesus. It's important for us to get this. Now what we miss in Matthew that some of the other Gospels lay out for us is after Jesus kind of shares this meal for them, Uh, an argument breaks out amongst this ragamuffin group of disciples. They begin to argue back and forth about who is greater amongst them, who is the best amongst them. We call these people one-uppers, right? I'm the best. We love to get in these sorts of arguments and to kind of, um, you know, tout our prowess with other people. And so what does Jesus do? After hearing this argument back and forth, the greatest one in the room, it says that he, he disrobes and, and he gets down at the disciples' feet and he begins to wash their feet. While doing so, he begins to share his kind of last sermon with them. And in the Gospel of John, I wish we had time to read all of it this morning, but you guys would probably leave me, except for Justin and Todd, they can't. And... In that sermon, we see some of the most memorial um, reminders that we often forget about whenever we quote them. And that is this. Jesus says in this last supper, in this last meal, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We often forget the context when we quote that or put it on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, don't we? It's one of the last sayings of Jesus before he is carried off and placed upon a cross. Many times, Jesus has these episodes over his last three years of ministry where people try to get him to do stuff, right? Remember Mary in John chapter 4 when Jesus does the spring break miracle and he turns the water into wine? And he says to her, woman, you want me to do something, but my hour has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And yet Jesus in this time, in this moment, declares the hour has come. He concludes the meal. He concludes this time. And he leads them to a garden. The garden called Gethsemane, which literally means oil press. Gethsemane was a common place for our disciples and Jesus to meet. It was probably in the cool of the day they could go there and find some shade. Um, Gethsemane typically is an olive grove um, that may have even included a small cave dwelling where the men who would process or the slaves or the people who would process these olives would actually go in there and press them and then they could store them in a much cooler place. This Olive press was typically done by taking olives, putting them in this large bat, and then having a wheel that was typically turned by servants or slaves or your smallest children. As they would walk away, it would crush those olives. And the first liquid to come to the surface is the most precious of all of those olives. And they would skim that off. That's what we call extra virgin olive oil. 
They would continue through a, a multi-step process to get more oils that uh, would be of less value to them. Um, and I'm told by people who do this is that you can literally crush an olive and get all of its liquid out of it so much that you can put it in your hand and blow it and it will be like dust in the air. That's some serious, serious pressure. Jesus has been there on many occasions with his disciples. It would have been known by all of them, including Judas, that this is probably where he was going to hang out for the evening. However, in this Garden of Gethsemane, it was not an olive that was going to be crushed. It was a person. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Jesus of Nazareth. God's Son. In the garden, we get to peer to the very heart of Jesus and his humanity. As with, God, God, as with us, God's primary work is often an internal one. And for a brief moment, we get to peer in to see the very heart and mind of Jesus as he wrestles with the terrifying reality of what is about to take place. Friends, Jesus is not 50% God and 50% man. Jesus is 100% God. But he is also a hundred percent man. Making him a hundred percent God, that means that he's all-knowing. And even in, God's, in John's gospel, chapter 18, verse 4, it says Jesus knowing all things that would happen to him. So yes, he is, he is fully God. He knows all things. And yet the Bible is very clear that Jesus is fully man. This means this, that Jesus would feel every blow of relationship brokenness or the brokenness caused by a whip a spear and nails in some ways i think that we try to make believe about jesus's experience over the next several hours of him experiencing the cross and the resurrection but we need to get this this morning the fatigue was real the hunger was real the thirst was real. The emotions from grief to joy were all experienced by Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the agony of the garden and the agony of him on a cross was real. Let us not allow ourselves to believe that it only appeared that Jesus was experiencing these things. That in some way, yes, his, his flesh was being ripped apart upon his body, but that internally he did not really feel these things. Those concepts are alive. If it is painful for you, it would be painful for this Jesus. We get to peer into this. The Bible tells us as it was read to us that as Jesus enters into the garden that he kind of leaves a lot of the disciples and then kind of takes the three stooges, Peter, James, and John, his closest companions, a little bit further. We are constantly seeing Jesus with these three men kind of unveiling certain things to specifically to them. So he gathers up Peter, James, and John and with great sorrow and trouble in verse 38 it reads, My soul is very sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch with me. Jesus was such, under such immense pressure and stress that that alone could have killed him. People have been known throughout history to be 
so fearful and filled with anxiety that their heart stops. Scripture tells us that the weight of the, what Jesus was carrying was pressing down on him this much. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 44, it says of this very scene, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Mark's Gospel tells us that Jesus in the garden falls to the ground. He is so sorrowful that it is even unto death. We get a picture as we would an olive being crushed by the weight of a heavy stone as a heavy pillar would come crashing down or this large geth is actually a large beam made out of wood that would be on these flats and, and that's what a gethsemane is literally and they would press down on this again squeezing out the olive juice into bats in the floor and draining this through this process that we get a picture of seeing in this moment in this garden it was not those olives but it was a god man being pressed to the point where the Bible says literally, and, and again, I don't know if it was literal or figurative, but we still get the same picture here. It does not deplete the reality of this oppression and stress and anxiety as literally Jesus is being wrong dry of himself inside of this garden. Brothers and sisters, your suffering and my suffering is real. In no way do I want to belittle that. It's real. But I want you to know this, and I want myself to know this and be reminded of it this morning, is that our darkest of days look like winning the lottery compared to what Jesus is experiencing. We should be careful in comparing what we walk through, though it is real, to this moment that Jesus is walking through taking his closest friends with him encourage them to what to stay awake i don't know about you but after i eat i like to sleep especially if i'm talking tossing back bread and grape juice it's a cocktail for sleepy time and by this time it's believed that jesus is is probably in the middle of the night and yet Jesus is encouraging them to what to, to fall, to, to not fall asleep, but to stay awake. He, he realizes that not only will he be tested, but they will be tested. These same men who were just moments earlier arguing over who is the greatest, the same guys who said in the Gospel of Matthew and other places, Jesus, we will never deny you. Remember that from the Passover? We will never deny you. And it, yes, is it Peter that is voicing this? But the Bible also tells us there in that little section that so were the other disciples. So that you get this that as they're eating the meal. We're the greatest. We're the greatest. Some of you are going to deny me or you're going to deny me. We would never deny you. And they're arguing over who can speak it maybe the loudest to declare their loyalty to Jesus. These same guys who said they would die for Jesus. In his darkest moments, where are they, brothers and sisters, friends? They're asleep. Ultimately, he knew that this was something that he was going to have to accomplish alone. I'm a person that actually enjoys to be alone. 
I enjoy to be with people. I enjoy to be alone. I'm naturally an, an introvert, so being alone really doesn't bother me. I actually find great um, kind of refreshing by being alone. I enjoy that. But the thing is, is that none of us have ever really been alone. Jesus is alone. We have maybe felt alone, but we have never been alone. But Jesus is truly alone, and we're going to see this. So why is Jesus experiencing such agony? I mean, I can think of no other place in Scripture where we can see, we see Jesus is angry at moments. All right? Turning tables over in the temple and running people out with a whip that's a pretty angry Jesus. We, we see peaceful Jesus. We, we see gracious Jesus. I, I, I think that if we could have spent enough time with Jesus, we would have seen Jesus make jokes, which, man, I wish that would help me out a lot. Because I, I struggle with that. How do you make humorous jokes and it be okay? I think that we would see Jesus in his humanity experiencing all of those things, and yet we don't get any other glimpses into Jesus having this type of agony. Doesn't Jesus know that he's going to be resurrected in three days? Yes, he does. Again, I've already read to you John chapter 18, verse 4. Jesus knowing all things that would happen to him. Is Jesus being a coward? Is Jesus being a wimp here? Is Jesus being a wuss? Are, are we getting to peer into the, the, I think, young, now, 33-year-old Jesus whimpering in a garden? Verse 39. Jesus prays on several different occasions here. In verse 39, he says this, My Father... If it possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Skip on down to verse 42. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. As, as the cups are being passed, Jesus probably not partaking, especially in what is believed to be this last cup, this cup of protection. And yet he waits to drink it. Not in a literal sense. I don't believe that Jesus packed a cup to the garden. But in a real spiritual sense, Jesus brings up this idea of the cups. Once again, let this cup pass from me. If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Not my will, but your will. Your will be done. And so these statements beg us a question. Let me help you with your Bible reading. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Reading Scripture should cause us to question things. So the question here for me is, is what is this cup that Jesus is speaking of then? What is in the cup as well that Jesus speaks of? In the Scriptures, we, we see that the cup, this cup, has a very specific reality and meaning. It is the cup of God's wrath. It's the cup of God's wrath. When's the last time that you've contemplated God's wrath? In certain circles, did you know that within Christendom that they've even attempted to remove certain lyrics from songs when they're sung? Because they mention God's wrath. 
I mean, when is the last time, brothers and sisters, that you've really contemplated God's wrath? Again, in our culture, I would say several years ago, that we, we can create within even a church culture this idea of, you know, hell's brimstone, you know, this fiery, slobbering, you know, handkerchief wiping preacher, you know, trying to, to scare you to death. And the pendulum can often swing to where now there are books talking about where, where ev- former evangelical pastors don't even believe in hell anymore. And that we're not even going to mention wrath. And that we're going to be really careful about ever mentioning this idea of the wrath of God or of hell. I'm going to ask that you would contemplate God's wrath as much as we can this morning. See, what, what meal were they celebrating initially? It was the Passover. What is, why do they call it the Passover? Because when God was releasing them out of the hands of the Egyptians, the final straw was what? Again, take this blood of the lamb, put it over your doorpost, and when I send my wrath, those who are covered in the blood of the lamb, I will pass over them and they shall live. Brothers and sisters, friends, on this night, God, his wrath is not going to pass over Jesus. On this very evening, we get to peer in as the the full brunt of divine wrath crushes our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the ground as he bleeds out in this garden. It is not passing over him. It is crushing him. In Psalm 75, verse 8, some scripture here. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among you. Even in the book of Revelation, We see in chapter 14, verses 9 through 11, another angel, the third, followed him, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. This cup that Jesus is speaking of, that he's asking God if there is any other way, is the cup of divine wrath. It's illustrated when Moses, remember when he comes down off the mountain and finds the people of Israel, what are they doing? They're in all sorts of immorality. They've taken their gold and they've created an image made out of gold to a false god, a false idol. And God, I believe, working and revealing his wrath through the person and work of Moses, what does Moses tell him to do? To chop up that golden calf, grind it into dust, put it in a cup, and make those people drink it if they love it that much. God's wrathfulness and just is real. It is greater than any of the horror movies that we could ever fathom and come up with. 
God's punishment is real. His wrath is great. His bow of his anger and his wrath is drawn tight and is aimed toward the sinner. Let us not dumb down to buddy Jesus, but our God is holy. He is right. He is, is just in his holiness. This is the cup of God's judgment that he would pour out on the wicked to the point that they would literally become drunk and ill on his wrath, you guys. It's similar to, to what we may have considered in our culture, waterboarding, this idea of this torturous punishment and it is this continual pouring of wrath. where God would give them over to the pleasure and then force-feed them the consequences of his wrath. It was to show them the consequences of drinking their own sin. So why is it so compelling this morning? Why is this so riveting? Jesus had never sinned. You get that. Say it in your mind, because we don't say that out loud when we become Pentecostal or something, but in your mind, Baptist people, in your mind, say... Jesus was without sin. We sin every day. You have probably sinned since you've been in this room. Let's get it real narrowed down. Mike's shaking his head. We all know that. We've been watching you. All right? Sinner. All right? The, the thing is, did you know that even as I am preaching this, I am probably sinning in the midst of being obedient. Because they are often, man, it is a tight squeeze because if I'm thinking that any of this is a reflection of me and how good I'm doing up here and all this sort of stuff, even me preaching the word can in and of itself, this side of glory, be sinful. I've come across people who say that they don't sin every day. In my mind, I think, you're a liar. You just sinned, right? They believe in this idea of sanctification to the point of perfection. But do you get that, brothers and sisters? We only think about, man, if I only look at, at, at something I shouldn't watch on television or a computer or something like that, or if I lie about this, or if I murder somebody, or if I steal something, all those things, that's when I'm counting up sins throughout my day. I'm trying to make sure that I don't hit any of those biggies. Jesus never did any of those things. This is riveting. It's, it is beyond our ability to even fathom. And that's why, man, it's so it's a struggle as a preacher sometimes. Like, I cannot do this text justice. So if this is for sinners, if the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus and yet he is not a sinner, then why is Jesus drinking the punishment of sins? See, this cup is not ultimately for Jesus. This cup was ultimately for me. This cup is ultimately for you. We should be the ones drinking the cup in the garden. We are the objects of God's wrath because of our very sinful nature. We desire to be God. And this is, it edifies itself and illustrates itself in a variety of ways, brothers and sisters and friends. Jesus, the perfect Son of God, the one who's tempted yet is without sin. He is the spotless Lamb of God. 
was about to drink the full cup of divine wrath. So when Jesus asked if there is any other way for the cup to pass, it, it is, he is not talking about the hammer and the nails that will come at the hands of the Romans. No, he is talking about the very cup that is in the hand of God, the cup of his wrath. Jesus has been telling disciples this makes no sense if Jesus is being cowardly here toward being scared of the Romans or Judas. Jesus has been telling them, do not fear men, but to fear God. Jesus knew that to be absent from the body was to be present with the Lord. His spirit was willing, but in this moment we see that his flesh is very weak. He did not fear the cross. For there was something greater to fear than physical death. Jesus in this moment is, is fearing God's holy and righteous judgment of sin. He was going to know for the first time what it meant to be forsaken by God, to, be, to peer into hell, to fill it to be the object of it. Friends, we must be careful in making light of sin. We must be careful in making light of sin. Because our God does not. You've been told a lie that God hates the sinning but loves the sinner, and yet that is not what the Bible says. The Bible, like in Psalm chapter 5, verse 5, and Psalm 11, verse 5 through 6, it not only says that he hates the sin, but he hates the sinner. He hates it. And how good of a judge would he be if he does not punish this sin? The sins that if, if, if you were perfect up until you showed up this morning and you committed a sin, I want you to know to compare that sin to the, uh, the holiness of our God. It is serious to him from the, the smallest of, of gossip to the misuse of a word in an inappropriate manner, to, to the killing of one person, to the killing of masses, to the abuse of children, whatever you want to label it as, I want you to know that it is grotesque to a holy and righteous God, and He is the judge. All of us want the criminal to be rightly judged, don't we? No one is getting upset. If there's a mass murder among us, and, and he or she is caught, and they stand trial, and they punish them to either take their life or life imprisonment, let's face it, we're all supporting that judge. We would flip out if he didn't, right? None of us are thinking that that is a bad judge. But our struggle is, brothers and sisters, none of us believe that we're the criminal, we struggle to think that, that we aren't really that bad. Here's something I encourage you to try that I've been preaching to myself. When everyone thinks that I'm a bad person, as I quickly try to respond to them, or at least in my mind, oh, I'm much worse than they even know that I am. 
I am much worse than you think your pastor is. Much worse. If you knew everything, you wouldn't come. I'm much more worse than the greatest rumor, truth or false, that have ever been spread about you and I. Guess what? You are much worse than that. Everyone, look around in here. And it's true of all of you. Being a pastor and an elder, I, I found out how bad you are in some areas. About people you're sitting next to. You find out about those things about me because all you have to do is spend some time around me and you'll see how much of a wretch I am. And I'm even worse. We don't think that we're that bad. And yet we are. Jesus knew that in a matter of a few hours, he would do as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says, bear the sins of many. Bear the sins of many. When is the last time that you have ever grieved over a sin in your life? I'm talking about whether it was this, you think it's this big, or where do you think it's this big? When is the, the last time that you have truly grieved over sin? Do you remember that feeling? Do you remember the, the darkness and just the, the guiltiness and the, the nastiness that you felt in that moment? And maybe it was just one time. Jesus, that's you bearing that sin. Jesus is going to bear the sins of many. And who is this many? The many is the church. It is his sheep. It is the ones that he is foretold of and predestined and elected and chosen before the foundations of the earth is that, that Jesus would, would die upon the cross, that he would absorb the sins of the many. The many is the church. Think of the worst moment of suffering in your life or, or maybe in all of human history, possibly even the Holocaust. Again, I don't take our suffering and pain lightly. But if we were to combine all of those, it would be a, a particle of dust in an infinite sea of suffering that Jesus is about to experience. The wave of God's holiness, his divine wrath comes crushing down on Jesus, squeezing him of every drop. Jesus prays. And guess what he hears? Silence. The first time Jesus hears nothing from the throne room of God. Lamentations 1.12 says, is, is it nothing to you all who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which brought me upon me which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. Pastor John MacArthur out of Grace Community Church says this, never was so much sorrow emanating from the soul of one individual. We could never comprehend the depth of Christ's agony because frankly, we cannot perceive the wickedness of sin as he could, nor could, can we appreciate the terrors of divine wrath the way he did. The sorrow he expresses is in the Gethsemane prayers, therefore beyond our comprehension. 
The Bible tells us, He who knew no sin became sin in the fullness. The complete wrath of God was poured upon Jesus. Grace, gone. Love, gone. Mercy, gone. Only justice in this moment. Only God's justice. As he hung on the cross, the gavel of God slammed against the judge's desk and the sentence is read, guilty, 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 guilty on all accounts and the sentencing is death and Jesus takes the death. He takes the death. As Jesus hung there on the cross, he carried the guilt of all the sin, you and I sin, for those of us whom he has saved, all sin, past, present, and future, has been put into the person and work of Jesus. This is the great exchange. God, the holy, the just, the creator of all things, took the sins of his people and placed that weight upon Jesus, crushing him like an olive to the point where he inwardly and externally he bled out. This was the cross that Jesus was to bear. More than a wooden beam, more than some few pieces of iron piercing his, his wrists and his feet. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus feels separation, abandonment, and punishment from God. We must be reminded that hell is not the absence of God. You've learned that from the Looney Tunes, that it's some hellish place where the devil and all of his demons kind of reside and throw a party and, and work out their schemes. But yet that is not what the scripture alludes to. The scripture says, or alludes to this idea that hell is not the absence of God, it is the absence of his love. Oh, he's there. He's there. And he is a good judge pouring out righteous judgment on sinners. Jesus' primary mission was to do the will of the Father, wasn't it? It was not because of you and I above all. But it was because of God. It was because of His glory. It was because of His fame. It is not that Jesus was on the cross and I was on His mind. No, first and foremost, as Jesus is on the cross, God is on His mind. His goal is obedience. His goal is faithfulness, even to the point of death. And Jesus is illustrating obedience to us at all costs when He says and declares, not my will but yours be done, even if this meant suffering to the point of death. Jesus, the true and better Adam, returns to a garden. And instead of disobedience, he obeys. Brothers and sisters of the Trinity did not go to the war room in heaven when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit to try to figure out some new scheme and plan to rewrite God's plan. No, before the foundations of the earth, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit planned, orchestrated their redemptive work. As they, the disciples, argued about who was the greatest, God flexes in this moment and reveals his greatness. As they failed to pray, Jesus prays all night. As the disciples bragged as they would, would follow and be obedient until death, they ran. But Jesus dies. Jesus is faithful 
and was faithful for the unfaithful. He completed the mission. He, he did what we could not do for ourselves. Our King Jesus is faithful. He was and he is today. For the wage of sin is death. Something must die. The righteous judgment of God must be done or he is no longer God. And that death, that payment was paid by Jesus. This is the good news. This is something we need to be reminded of for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. It tells us in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs upon a tree. Romans chapter 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He has passed over former sins. 1 John 4, 10, in his love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this big word here, what is it, propitiation? I have no desire to throw grenade bombs of you on huge words. And yet we see this word in the scripture. You need to know this one. This is one to write down. Propitiation. What is Propitiation, this big word, this big Bible word. Propitiation means this. That God's wrath for you and for me, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, has been completely satisfied. That it has been completely appeased. Brothers and sisters, if you are here in this room today, you need to know that God is, he is for you. Ultimately, he is for himself. And yet, living that out fleshly amongst us, that God is for you. God is not this abusive father out there seeking to squash his kids. But he is there to lovingly discipline and guide. And how is all of this appeased? How is the payment of sin paid? It is paid through Jesus as he bears our sins, as he takes them. And they're not just appeased for a little while. God's wrath isn't just satisfied for a moment. But praise be to God for all of eternity. Not something that is coming to you in the future, but that something that is right in you today. For those of us in Christ Jesus, you and I are as saved as we are ever going to be, and it's only going to get better, courtesy of Jesus. Thanks, Cash. Only because of him. Man, we forget this stuff. This is the joy of our salvation. God providing a worthy substitute himself. We do this with our kids, right? You're grounded for the next week. And if they do everything that is required of them, your wrath is appeased. Your wrath is satisfied. Jesus is the worthy substitute. He says, okay, you have been perfect. I am placing all of my wrath, all the sin and its punishment is all coming and funneled down, not into the multitude of his church body, but into one, Jesus, the spotless lamb of God. Jesus did not just cancel the wrath. He absorbed it. God just all of a sudden get the idea to go, oh, oh, never mind. I was joking about that whole you're going to die thing. That is not what happened, brothers and sisters. To do so would make God a liar, and therefore not God. God poured out all of the wrath that the church deserved on himself. Remember, salvation, God is ultimately saving us from himself. 
for himself. God loves us so much that he sends his son to die, to give us everlasting life. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He drinks the wrath. He drinks the wrath and he he gives to us the grace. We should be drinking the wrath and yet we get to drink grace now. And he drinks it all. Every last drop he drinks. Jesus goes to Gethsemane so those of us who are in Christ Jesus will never go. As bad as you and I have ever felt about our sin does not equal the magnitude of pressure and punishment that Jesus went to to cover it in his blood. There is no equal. There is none. There is none. Conclusion. Here because of, I don't know, pastoral pressure from people or seminary or, you know, I need to give you three points in a poem for you to get this. This is where the point in the sermon where I'm supposed to cast out a lot of application, which really drives me nuts, to be quite honest. It's where I'm supposed to, you know, give you some kind of use be creative and list out a word and tell you the G stands for this and the R stands for this and the A stands so you can go home and got man we got these handles not saying that that is all bad this is where I want to talk to you about what it means to stay awake and to be consistent in prayer and to to be the church to be obedient and again all all of these can be very helpful and there is a place for them But today, I'm afraid if we do that, we're going to miss the point. As we've been learning in our Behold Your God study, what you must cling to, the handle, the ultimate application. Jesus does this because this is who Jesus is. It is his character and nature. We don't simply serve him because of what he has done. We serve him because this is who he is. It's in his very nature. Our very nature is to do what? Sin. His very nature is to live, to come, to die, to absorb the full wrath of God, to be buried in a a borrowed tomb, and to be resurrected on the third day. It is his character toward himself, toward his children. This is who Jesus is. It was not just another noble act by a man or a woman. This is God flexing, showing us that he is both just and that he is loving. This is the complete working of God's redemptive plan. Sin must be paid for, brothers and sisters, friends, through the death of the only one true spotless lamb. And now Jesus hangs upon a cross and he cries out in pain as the blood drips forth from his hands, his feet, and his head. The moral laws, guess what? They have been fulfilled through Jesus. The judicial law has been fulfilled through Jesus. The ceremonial law has been fulfilled through Jesus. And fulfilled through Jesus in his last breath, he is able to scream, what? It is finished. The cup has been drank. The divine wrath has been drunk completely. 
It was not the nails that held Jesus to the cross. At any moment, he could have called down legions upon legions of angels to rescue him. It was not the nails. It was love. It was love. It was the love that Jesus had for God the Father. It was the love that Jesus had for his bride. This truth is staggering. The cup that we should have drank was given to Jesus. He takes the wrath. And we get salvation. If you're a believer and you're in this room today, you know what our response should be? Worship. In everything that we do. That we preach ourselves this gospel every day. And in that darkest of hours, in your life, which again is real, two things. One, it does not compare to this story that we're talking about here. However, may you recognize this. In your darkest of hours, may you remember Jesus' darkest of hour. And I'm telling you, you can make it. You can make it because of what he has accomplished that it is finished it is done and so may we be encouraged may we be driven what would it be like for us to be a risky church a risky people a people living on mission that are not afraid of anything because the holiness the righteousness the grace the mercy of God has been completely imputed us to live recklessly for the sake of the gospel non-christians This morning, I love you. I love you very much. Please listen to me. If you're a non-believer in this room today, the correct response for you is you should be scared to death. You should be scared to death. That should be your initial response is to evaluate the reality of your sin compared to the holiness of God, and you should be trembling at its sight. Trembling at your lostness. Trembling at the darkness of your heart. Because as this wrath was poured out on Jesus for the sake of his bride, if you die and are lost and undone without this Jesus that I'm speaking of, the book of Revelation points to that guess what's going to happen? What Jesus drank, you will also experience it. What was going into his body and into his life from the throne rooms of heaven will, will not be funneled through him, but it is coming to you. It is coming to you. And as God is infinitely loving, God is infinitely just. He is equal in both of those things. And if we think that his love is exorbitant and lavish, so is his wrath. And it is coming. And so I preach like those who have come before me. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. 
And his name is Jesus. And Jesus is coming again. So profess that you are a sinner. Call upon God. And maybe like me, you didn't know exactly words to say, but you said, Lord Jesus, help my unbelief. If you are who you say you are, change my life. Forgive me of my sin. That you would come to the the, just the complete totality at the realization of who you are left in your sin. And may you repent. May you turn from it. And may you come to the open arms of Jesus at the realization of the beauty of Him taking your punishment. Jesus, the faithful King, is still completing His faithful work. He's still saving people. Here in just a moment, we're going to take a moment of silence. I'm going to lead us in some songs of worship. We'll take a break from that. We're going to have communion. I'm going to sing one more song and lead you out. But man, as we're doing those things, if you're a believer and you need to be prayed for, our elders will be in the back of the room. They would love to pray for your healing, the healing of your life, your marriage, whatever is taking. This is as close as Mission Church gets to an altar call, okay? But our pastors are going to be in the back of the room. I mean, if you need to speak with one of them, then we encourage you to go and do that. If the Holy Spirit lost person, again, you're welcome here. You're welcome to come here and struggle you're welcome to come here and wrestle. We love you. We want you to be here. And even more so, we're praying that God would redeem you and save you and change you. And if you are in this room today and you are hearing this being preached to you and the Holy Spirit is massaging your heart and he is compelling you to be honest and truthful and not just emotional-based decision and just believing that you can repeat some prayer and Jesus save you. But man, if you are truly feeling a movement of God in your life to come confess, to turn from your evil ways, to repent from those sins, and to follow after Jesus, then we will also encourage you to go to speak with one of our pastors. We want to shepherd you well. We want to shepherd you faithfully. Because, man, we have an awesome shepherd who drank our wrath, reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Let's pray. Lord, Thank you, God, for who you are. We thank you for your presence.